What does it mean as a pastor to not think that the inbreaking of the kingdom happens on Sunday morning or whenever you gather for worship, but that the inbreaking of the kingdom happens the Monday to Friday, and that Sunday is about equipping and empowering God's people to both see the inbreaking of the reign of Christ and know how their work is a means by which they participate. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. It's Jason here, and I'm so thankful that you would join us today. It's a really special thing that seems to be happening. There's this growing community of pastors across Canada listening into these conversations that represent a group of people who are asking the question, what does it mean to lead Jesus Church faithfully under his leadership in this time in the nation of Canada? It's a growing community of people who are passionate about making disciples and making Jesus known and who want to lead in a way that honors Jesus, that tends to their own hearts, walk with God while leading people deeper and deeper into a relationship with God. And part of this regular podcast is championing stories where God's at work in Canada and engaging thought leaders and pastors from around the world and from here in Canada. And today, I get to share a conversation I had with Gordon Smith, who's the president of Ambrose Seminary and a professor of systematic and spiritual theology. He's written a number of books, including Welcome Holy Spirit, Wisdom from Babylon, Teach Us to Pray, and Consider Your Calling. And in this conversation, because he's such a prolific writer and thinker, and he cares so much about forming Christian leaders for every sphere of society, we had a meaningful conversation about not only what does it look like for us to discover our own church's unique calling in a city and our own calling as pastors to that church and city, but how do we mobilize and help our congregations see their work and life as an extension of God's kingdom at work on planet earth? How do we help people discover a life of calling and purpose? We talked about that and a ton more in our conversation that we'll hear in a moment. And let me tell you a bit about what's happening in the CCLN world. We're getting ready to open up a new intake for our incubator program. It's a two-year program for lead pastors designed to draw a small group together on an intentional learning journey to grow in character, calling, competency, and formation as we work out some of the conversations we're having here on the podcast in a deeper and deeper way together. And we're about halfway through the first program. And this week ahead, we're heading over to the UK to visit churches and thought leaders around the UK as a group together. And we're going to be able to share some of the conversations we have with people like Tom Wright and Nikki Gumbel and others with you on the podcast in the coming weeks. And so we're looking forward to that. Pray for us as we travel together. And my prayer is that God would do something in our heart together as pastors in our journey that would be like a deposit, a deposit in our heart that we take back to our context as we go forward in our day-to-day -day work serving Jesus here and now. One thing we love about Compassion Canada is their commitment to the local church and to local church leaders. It's really something that's built into their identity as an organization. And that's one reason why we're happy to partner with them at CCLN. In the 25 countries where Compassion serves children living in poverty, they invest in local churches, pastors, and volunteers to equip and empower the church to reach their neighbors with practical care and the good news of Jesus. Here in Canada, it's the exact same. 
Compassion is wholly committed to investing in Canadian local church leaders, in particular during these times when refreshment and connection and refueling is so needed. Compassion is doing things like national pastors calls and giving away free resources for pastors. We know you'll find rich connection in reaching out to the Compassion Church team. They'd even love to just hear how you're doing and to pray for you. You can get in touch with them today by heading to compassion.ca. That's compassion.ca. Well, Gordon, it is really special to be with you today. This morning, as I was getting ready for this conversation, I called a friend of this podcast, a friend of mine, Daryl Johnson. Most listeners have heard him. He's a pastor here in Vancouver and uh, been on the podcast a number of times. I said, hey, I'm chatting with Gordon Smith. I think you know him. He goes, Gordon Smith? Do I know him? He's one of my dear friends. And I said, well, how did you guys meet? And he said, oh, well, when I was pastoring in Manila, he was leading a college in Manila. And so, Gordon, I'd love to hear you know, more of your story than just how you know Daryl, but how, and then you're, I understand you had missionary time in Ecuador and you've pastored globally. I just love for people just off the top to hear a bit of your story, life and ministry. So I grew up in Latin America. My parents were missionaries there. So speak Spanish, but came back to Canada in my late teens and did undergraduate studies, eventually went on to seminary and came back to the faith during my university years, hmm. um, largely through the influence of Francis Schaeffer and uh, the cohort of writers and speakers that were part of his um, team, I guess the word is, I don't know, um, uh, met Joella, well, my wife, while I was a university student. Where were you studying? At the University of Regina, studying history. Okay. So I was a history major. So... Um, then went on to seminary and from there into pastoral ministry in Ontario, Canada. Whereabouts in Ontario were you pastoring? In Peterborough, Ontario. Okay. Yeah. Shout out Peterborough. Uh, so no, those were good years. Um, and then uh, went to the Philippines. Um, at the time, part of a huge press movement in the late 20th century to plant churches in large urban centers around the world. So we were part of that kind of hip, hip, hurrah, here we go. Arrived in the Philippines and realized, one, I'm not cut out to be a church planter. Secondly, there are many, many Filipinos who are more than capable and qualified to do this, much more than I am. What am I doing here? Um, and was invited to join the faculty of a theological seminary there. Uh, at first, teaching part-time, eventually joining them full-time. Did my doctoral studies in the Philippines. Uh, eventually became the dean of the seminary. In fact, wow. I became the dean of the seminary right around the time that Daryl showed up. Um, I think maybe even the same year. Mm. Um, and we developed a friendship fairly early on in his tenure in that time um, and connected often not just as the two of us, but our families as well. Our sons mm. were best friends during those years. Um and then came back to Canada in the early 90s, and I was the dean of our denomination, my denomination, I'm ordained with the Christian Missionary Alliance. We have a denominational seminary, or had one, in Regina, Saskatchewan, and I came back to Canada to be the dean of that seminary, um, and then served there for about seven years, and then they got a new president who was a little underwhelmed by me. This <laughs> happened in our lives. Yeah, uh, these things happen. You know, you just kind of roll with it. Um, so one thing led to another. I left 
and ended up in 1998 at Regent College uh, there in mm. Vancouver. So mm. served on the faculty of Regent and served as the dean for a number of years. And I continue to have a teaching fellow appointment there. So teach two or three courses a year at Regent. Very glad that I get to teach on pneumatology this mm. summer, uh, this spring school in May, uh, partly because of the huge uh, tension, tension, it's the wrong word, um, huge uh, split uh, within my own denomination and I think beyond on matters of pneumatology. Um, what that, are the contentious issues within that? The contentious issues are, what is the evidence of the work of the Spirit in our lives? Hmm. Uh, so I think you have one party, you might say, that have, in my estimation, a truncated pneumatology um, they've never gotten to Pentecost. Um, and so um, the, the, they're, they're Trinitarian, and they say, we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. And they're biblicists. They lack a, a dynamic sense of the immediacy of the Spirit in the life, work, and witness of the church. And then on the other hand, there are those for whom um, they use the expression, the manifest presence and where pneumatology is all about an experience of the ethereal other. Um, and so then liturgy and worship is all about creating this ambiance, this notion mm. of the ethereal other. Neither of these, in my estimation, is Trinitarian. And therefore, um, what I do is try to recover a sense in which the only, the only way forward is to recover a richly nuanced Trinitarian theology and worship, and on that score, deeply influenced by Daryl Johnson, he and I have talked mm. about these things uh, as long as we've known each other, talked about what does it mean to have a pneumatology that is Christocentric, um, a Christological pneumatology, um, an experience of Christ that draws, experience of the Spirit that draws us into fellowship with the risen and ascended Lord. Mm. So um, that, I think, kind of summarizes the debate. And I, I don't know. I hope that indeed I can contribute. I've written a book on the subject, um, and I hope that the course that I teach at Regent can contribute to um, re-clarifying what we mean by, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the great line in the creed, uh, the Lord and giver of life. Just what does that mean? Hmm. Um, and I teach um, a course on discernment in which I contend that it is possible for us to live in an immediate responsiveness to the grace of the Spirit in our lives. Mm -hmm. um, so even around some of the things that you and I have chatted about, um, I want us to be able to answer courageously the question, what is the Spirit up to in our day? And what does it mean for us to respond missionally to that? Mm -hmm. So it's a twofold question, both internally for myself, how is the Spirit calling me to be present to this time and to this place? But then also, I'm, I'm weary of uh, the propensity of churches to what I call at least franchise. I think that it behooves us to instead ask, how can we learn from others for sure? But how is the Spirit calling us to be the church in mm -hmm. this time and in this place and to give local congregations the skills or the competencies to do that, to discern collectively 
how the Spirit is calling us to be, what we are called to be in this time and in this place. And frankly, I, I, I believe that for the university that I head up. What does it mean to be Ambrose University and Seminary in this city with this kind of an ecclesial affiliation, uh, given the kinds of students that we are called to connect with in a post-Christian secular age? What does Christian higher education look like? So uh, we're, it seems to me we should always be asking that question. What does it mean to be the church in a time of a pandemic? Rather than being overwhelmed by this, is there a way in which we can discern uh, how the Spirit is calling the church to be the church in such a time as this? And of course we can, but my, my fear is that the whole franchising model kind of created this kind of... Um, we, we don't need to do our own homework. We can we don't have to do our own due diligence. Um, and um, what I want to what I want to do is empower pastors and churches to say, no, I'm pastoring on this street corner in this part of Vancouver. Across the street from me is a Lutheran church. Kitty corner from me is a Baptist church. Great. And the three of us can actually discern differently, even though we're in the same neighborhood. We can say, this is what it means to be, name your own kind of denomination, this kind of a church in this time and in this place. The Baptist church across the street or the Lutheran church, kitty corner from me, may actually discern differently. And that's fine, as long as these are complementary and not competitive. Uh, mm. How can we be what God has called us to be in this time and place? Mm. If you were coaching me, I'm a pastor here in Vancouver, and you you were to invite me into some practices to practice that kind of discernment to grow in a sense of calling to place identity and missional approach in place um, what kind of practices or steps might you encourage a pastor like sure. myself i'm two years into our journey i pastor with a team and uh, we're serious about reaching the city what are some of the practices rhythms steps i can take to practice that kind of discernment that you're speaking of oh, well i'm going to say two things one is you need to walk you need to walk the neighborhood. Hmm. There's just no avoiding. And you need to walk the neighborhood and ask the question, what am I seeing? What am I hearing? What am I feeling? Um, and that requires attentiveness. And I, I'm, um, I'm aware of the language. I'm trying to think where it comes from, that we live in an age of distraction, uh, mm -hmm. where we lack the capacity for uh, subtleness and stillness. So to cultivate attentiveness, but when I say walk it, I mean uh, get out of your car, literally on your feet and walk it. There's just no avoiding that you've got to be on the ground. And um, and I do this every city that I go to, I walk it. Mm. Uh, regardless of what I'm, what role I'm being called. I just now, before I got on with you, was back and forth with a colleague in Romania. And uh, he's, he, he they, they often tease me that I know their cities so well. You're right. I've, I've walked Bucharest. I've walked the, the entire downtown core. I have a really good feel for the city. Um, and I urge them to do the same. So one is attentiveness. Secondly, mm -hmm. uh, we live, as Henry Nouwen has put it, in a culture of fear. And so we need to cultivate courage. Because what will keep us from doing what the Spirit of God is calling us to do is fear. Hmm. So if we live with a, uh, if we're not able to identify what's happening to us emotionally, it's going to, we're going to be overwhelmed by either anger or fear or both. So um, what, is, what are the fears that 
percolate around your consciousness. Um, men and women who are pastorally aware are emotionally aware. They're able to respond. They're able to identify what it is that uh, that might keep them from being all that they're called to be. Hmm. So Henry Nouwen speaks about the fact that our fears will never ultimately be gone. Um, all we can do is ask them to sit over in the corner. And when they try to come out of the corner, get a stick out and beat on them and tell them to stay where they belong. That's his more violent way of doing what I prefer. And that is that astute pastors are able to bracket out their fears. Hmm. That is to know that the decisions and choices they are making are not rooted in fear. Um, so, yes, I have my fears, but am I able to act in a way that is actually congruent with what Paul calls Timothy to in, in uh, 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, fan into flame the gift of God, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear um, or anxiety, but a spirit of love, power, and self-control. Hmm. Um, so, cultivating attentiveness and cultivating courage, I think, are, um, are rather crucial. This might transition a little bit into the work that you've done around uh, pastoring in secular Canada and articulating some of the work. I know that's informed by some of what Char Charles Taylor has done, but I know for me, part of my fear, if I'm honest, is I'm just so keenly aware of how confrontational some Christian doctrine is in the midst of a culture like Vancouver, probably same in most cities across Canada. And it's not, um, it's not obviously every point, but that's a real fear I'm wrestling with. Gordon is just like, and I'm just naming it. I don't. I hope I don't live out of it. I don't think I'm making sure. a decision, but I'm naming. I, I want. I want to be liked by my neighbors. I want to be liked by the city. I don't want to be picketed on Sunday morning. And uh, I'd love to know, Gordon, like as you processed some of the cultural shifts, how that changes what it means, not just to make disciples, but to pastor courageously in a world where 50 years ago, some of the core uh, ethical questions of Christianity were assumed on a cultural level. However, the core claim that Jesus is Lord is always confrontational. 50 years ago, 100 years ago, hasn't changed. However, the tone has changed in the dialogue of how it's interacting on a cultural level. And I just wonder, yeah, what kind of reflections you might have on that experience, the pastor feeling uh, that resistance against culture that's sometimes right in your church. Yeah. I would just um, observe that um, perhaps it's not so much the fear of failure in that case, but the fear of being shamed or rejected, um, mm. that what I have to offer is rejected, not welcomed. Um, and I think we need to just live, learn to live with that. So I sometimes jokingly say, but there's actually deep truth in it, I can't do my job unless I know I'm loved. Um, and ultimately, it's loved by the Father. But um, I, I lean into the love of friends and the love of spouse um, and the love of my granddaughters. Uh, mm. I have two granddaughters who think I'm awesome. Mm. Um, <laughs> you may think that you may be a little underwhelmed. But if you met my granddaughters, you'd be met, immediately impressed. They're young women of extraordinarily good judgment. Um, and so I lean into that judgment. That is, I find my ego needs met somewhere else than in the engagement with my neighborhood or my culture. And mm. you have to, you have to tend to those ego needs. Uh, you cannot survive without knowing that you are loved to the depth and core of your being. And ideally, that is ultimately the love of the father. 
mediated to you through Christ, through the grace of the Holy Spirit. But uh, there's no avoiding that it's going to be mediated to you through the grace of friendship, marriage, mm. family, uh, wherever and however that finds expression. Um, and I think what that does then is it gives us the hopefully the courage to build bridges rather than build walls, to find points of connection rather than find points of disconnection. So frequently our our engagement with our world is the points of difference rather than the points of commonality. Hmm. Um, so we're so aware during Ramadan how different our Muslim neighbors are. Um, develop a friendship with your Muslim neighbors and you find out that they're wrestling with some of the same things you are, trying to raise teenage girls or teenage males. Um, and the some of the same longings and aspirations are theirs that, as that are ours. But building rapport is mm. crucial. Finding common ground is crucial. And I think we assume our, our, when our posture is to first, uh, what are the points of disconnect with our culture and our society? Those will come up. But I'm just wondering whether that's that should be where we start. Mm-hmm. Let's start with where we have common ground. Mm-hmm. So I work in uh, higher education in this province. Um, all nine, there are nine universities in Alberta. We get together as the nine presidents of these universities, and they include University of Alberta with 38,000 students and our little house here with a thousand students and we're all in the room together. And uh, we were on a retreat together three weeks ago and we were talking about core values of higher education. It was a, it was a very stimulating conversation because I Mm. think everybody in the room was kind of surprised at how much we agree on. These are the core values. These are the deep commitments we have for our students, regardless of large university or small We've been doing this exercise as a staff at the church that I think is, it's like a thought exercise that I feel like could be really key to discipleship. And and the idea is you, you articulate maybe a current issue in the city or current thing happening in culture. And you try to articulate three things. First, what what does Christianity affirm about this? Like what's what's good and true and beautiful in what's happening? And then the second movement is, you know, what might the truth of God's word, the story of God in human history critique about this? What might it push up against? And then lastly, how do we articulate an alternative way, a redemptive alternative way in the context of God's story? Just building on the same conversation, you did a book in 2020 or was released in 2020 called Wisdom from Babylon, Leadership for the Church in a Secular Age. And I'd just love to hear, uh, just give give us a taste of some of the convictions that you form that we can learn leadership in a secular age from uh, the journey in Babylon and kind of some of the values you espouse that might serve pastors today. Well, I think there's no doubt that that book is written against the backdrop of a church that assumes that we have a privileged voice within our society. Mm. And that is long gone. Uh, Talk to me more about that. Talk about that shift. And we'll just park here for a little while because I think that's a really important shift because I think that sometimes there could be in one church, elders, board members who don't know the shifts happen. 
And then young right. leaders who are like, we're, we're talking about, you know, and so good people who love each other are, feel like they're talking about different worlds and missing each other. Right. So can you talk more about that shift and we'll park here for a while so we can dive deep. So fair enough. So I do think it's important for us to tell the story about what has happened to our society and our culture. So in Wisdom from Babylon, I go back to the 1960s and I agree with both historians, philosophers, and uh, sociologists who, who, who recognized that at least in the West, uh, the 1960s were a pivotal decade. Uh, we're telling a story about what has happened in our country. Um, and we're not trying to tell it in a judgmental way. We're just describing reality. Um, I think, so there's a song that gets sung in, I, I just, I roll my eyes at this song. Uh, and it, it, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come. And it has this line in it. Uh, we're going to win our nation back. Hmm. Uh, the problem with the line is it assumes we lost it. Uh, so when I say tell the story, it's not to tell the story of gain or loss. It's just to describe the new reality in which we live. But it has to be described in a way that is hopeful, that is not despairing. Um, so I'm a big fan of Soren Kierkegaard. Um, it was Kierkegaard who was saying 150 years ago plus, that maybe it's not a good thing when the church has a privileged role within the society, hmm. either architecturally in the big steeple downtown or in the way that its voice is privileged in the courts or in the legislature or in the schools. Those are the three big battlegrounds, uh, typically. Uh, at least they are here in North America. Um, so the huge debate about the Supreme Court in the United States and then now the huge debate about what happens in education in Florida. Uh, this is typical. One of the things we need to be doing is uh, is preaching the exile from mm. uh, the Old Testament prophets. This has been more relevant than ever. Mm. Um, so when I was a seminary student, uh, we focused on the Gospels and Paul. Uh, very, very little on the Old Testament prophets. It was, in a sense, an indication that we didn't see how relevant they were. There's no part of the scripture that's more relevant now. We've got to be wow. preaching Daniel and Jeremiah so mm. that there's a sense in which being the exile people, this is this is okay. Right. Um, and uh, Jeremiah and Daniel, especially Jeremiah, but uh, that this is this is manageable. This is not crushing or alien or foreign. Mm. I also think we need to be telling the story of the church in minor that has historically always been a minority presence. So no doubt my own experience has been deeply shaped by being in and out of Lebanon, hmm. meeting with uh, brothers and sisters there who live in a country where for centuries they've been a minority presence and the church has thrived there. Uh, so telling the stories of churches that have thrived as a minority presence, I think can be a source of encouragement to us. And then obviously much of my teaching takes me back to the early church, the pre-Christendom church to say um, Augustine, Ambrose, Gregory of Nyssa, these voices are more crucial than ever. So that um, I don't even teach, I don't teach a course at Regent, for example, or anywhere where I don't draw on the wisdom of the early church, because hmm. I think there's wisdom there for now that like never before. Wow. So telling the story of our own culture, but not in a way that despairs that something's gone wrong, just describe the new reality. Um, and to say, um, yeah, it's a change, 
And we don't like change. Mm -hmm. uh, fair enough. But let's not panic. Let's just say, okay, what's happened? And what does it mean? And what opportunities present itself for the church to thrive that wasn't there before? Mm. That is, I'm going to be so bold as to say, secularity, and this is Kierkegaard, so it's nothing original to me. Secularity is actually a gift. It's not a problem. It's an opportunity. Uh, same thing with pluralism. The fact that our country is religiously plural is not a problem. It's an opportunity. So if we can start resetting the issues that are before us to say, uh, only then I think will we have both the creativity and the courage to be what we are called to be in wow. this time and in this place. I feel so deeply about the importance of this conversation. I love that language of the creativity and the courage. I think what's interesting is to also name the story that we're experiencing, which is many, and I don't want to generalize too much, but I'll, for the sake of the conversation, many of our modes of church, like our best practices, you cited different sources of church models were birthed and formed and successful in the context yes. of a Christendom, a modern Christendom yes. within the Western cult culture. Yeah. And so what we're feeling is as, let's just say the church has fallen out of favor with the culture as a way to put it, is these models were almost like, well, this is all we know. And yeah. so when you mentioned right. yeah. sourcing Lebanon, sourcing the early church, uh, sourcing the first century church that spread across Rome, that's better source material for yeah. finding discipleship models. Now, obviously, there's also a need for the spirit to lead because we need to figure out how to do this in the digital context, which is entirely new and these other yeah. elements. But there's a sense by which we need to name that many of our modes and models were birthed in yeah. an era we're no longer yeah. in. And so, but we can't do the rethinking unless we get greater clarity about what it means to be the church. Hmm. So ecclesiology is more important than ever. And when you use the word church and when I use the word church, what is the range of associations we have with that word? I think what's going to come out of this is we're going to have a much keener sense of the church as a movement rather than as a club that you hmm. join like a member and so that being a participant in congregational life is going to look very different than uh, it's, it has to, uh, than being something that's defined by the benchmark or the boundary of, are you a member of this church? Mm. And therefore, you can vote at the AGM, whoever wants to go to the AGM anyway. Uh, but <laughs> I, think, uh, I think that's an example of where some deep change needs to happen, is mm. we rethink what does it mean to be a participant? a responsible participant in congregational life. But that's just one. Yeah. Uh, but if we're not clear about what we mean to be the church, we're not going to be able to navigate this because mm -hmm. your point is, is, is spot on. We have a whole range of assumptions about what it means to be the church that go with a, a, a Christendom model. Now, yikes, are we going to give up membership? Like that's, a, that's one of the givens. And so if that's the case... Um, uh, what does, what, how are we going to describe what does it mean to be the church and what does it mean to be a responsible participant in the life of the church? One of the ongoing conversations we've been having on this podcast, it's deeply connected is, and it sounds so funny to ask this question because we're dedicated to pastors, but even like defining the pastoral vocation. So if there's a crisis of ecclesiology, I think there's also a crisis of, defi of defining like a consistent ecclesiology, there's a crisis of defining the pastoral vocation. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, what does this mean? And again, when I, I don't want to, I want to save my commentary for another time, but there's that crisis. And then similar, I think, is how do you make a disciple or what is a disciple of Jesus? And it sounds like I'm not just trying to be like Socratic and go to these questions, but I, I think these are actual, this is the wrestling that we've kind of been able to do the work of church without asking the fundamental value of question of like, what are we doing? What does it mean to be a pastor within this context? And how would we know if we were making disciples or not? Yeah. Well, no, well, well said, because in both cases, they're derivative of our ecclesiology. Hmm. Um, so what does the pastoral vocation? We, we make a whole range of, uh, of assumptions about what that looks like, uh, how one invests time and energy. Um, what is the what are the indicators of fruitful and effective pastoral leadership? And they will flow directly from what we understand the church to mean. Hmm. So my um, an example of that for me would be that um, I think a course on preaching is not ultimately about technique and oratory, it's ultimately about meaning. What does what do we mean by this practice in the life of the church? Mm. Uh, but we're so obsessed with oratory and method. So I'm battling the phenomena known as competency-based education. And I want to say, no, no, you're asking the wrong question. Does the, is this person competent as a preacher? I want to say, no, do they understand the meaning of this act of preaching? Mm. What does it mean? And what it means, of course, is ultimately going to be directly related to your point about what it means to be the church. Um, so we're asking meaning questions like never before, have to. Mm. Um, and yes, <laughs> uh, we're going to be asking questions about what it means. To, what, what does the Christian life look like? Um, and we're gonna, I think we're going to be shifting metaphors. So the metaphor that has dominated my my way of thinking about the Christian life is the metaphor of infancy and adulthood. Um, so I published a whole book called To Be Saints, and it's subtitled An Invitation to Christian Maturity. I mean, it just there's just no avoiding that this baby boomer, that's how I think about the Christian life, from infancy to adulthood, and you're going to grow in wisdom. And Smith is an example of somebody who has beat this drum but increasingly, I'm finding that most of the people that I serve, it's not necessarily a metaphor that resonates with them. For them, consistently, two other metaphors are front and center. One is the metaphor of pilgrimage or journey. Hmm. Uh, look how popular the Camino de Santiago de Compostelo is. Well, that's in part reflection of the sense yeah. of that, that the Christian life is a journey, that we're, on, that we're pilgrims. And of course, it's an ancient it's an ancient metaphor. It dominates the Psalms, the Gospel of Luke. That's the metaphor of the Gospel of Luke. Um, we're followers of Jesus. So it's not that we just discovered this. It's just that we've kind of defaulted to metaphors that may not be as resonant. And another metaphor, I think, is the metaphor of uh, healing and uh, wholeness. Hmm. And that is that for so many people, uh, they're, they've given up on the Christian life because of an addiction or a trauma that they feel keeps them from being what they're called to be. And uh, so I think so many of our approaches to discipleship assume that you can kind of pull your life together. Um, and in actual fact, I can't. Um, we need to learn from Alcoholics Anonymous, frankly. They actually have some wisdom there that we might learn from, um, that if I'm addicted and broken and traumatized, um, I need... Um, 
I need a way forward that doesn't assume that I can get my act together. Hmm. I'd love to chat with you before we finish about calling. And maybe I'll just stitch together two points of reference. One was you had a moment where you realized maybe I'm not going to pastor in the way you expected. And then it seems like God did this really cool thing in your story of like through education and through, um, but you found this other way to build a church with your unique gifts and callings. And I know that you've done work. You've published a book called Courage and Calling. And I think that there's a lot of questions, at least for my peers in the church asking like, what does it mean to know if I'm called to be a pastor? Uh Um, Can I have assurance of my call? How do I work that out? And, And then also as we pastor, I feel like this is one of the number one questions I'm wrestling with with young disciples is how do I discover why I'm here on planet earth and my unique contribution? So I just love just to open the floor for you to share some of what you've learned and about discovering and helping people discover calling. Yes, uh, without doubt, um, probably in my speaking and preaching, the book Courage and Calling has been very well received. Um, And I have an actual book coming out later this year entitled Your Calling Here and Now. And there the focus is at this time and in this place. Jason, it's actually every day. Every day I want to know, and I... It's not an it's not an an um it's not an unreasonable aspiration and longing. At this time and in this place, how am I called to speak and how am I called to act? That's a reasonable question. Um, and what am I called to not say? And what am I called to not do? I don't have to be a frenetic, busy person. I can graciously accept this is what's been given to me to do, and may God give me the courage to do it to say what needs to be said, and do what needs to be done at any given time. It's every day. So yes, I know we often use the language of vocation. What's your job or occupation? I want to bring it right down to the immediate at this time and in this place. On any given day, there's more to do in this job as the president of university than one person could possibly do. And I don't need to be what all, I don't need to be a hero or a messiah. I can just at this time and in this place, what am I called to say and what am I called to do? Hmm. Um, and then to trust that God will do God's work in God's time with whatever contribution I bring to the table. Um, it actually is liberating, but it gives focus and meaning and purpose. Um, we can't get here, though, unless we appreciate that um, there's good in we, we have to get past the idea that there is a higher calling or a more sacred calling um, so that the calling to the mundane, the ordinary to, to is just as crucial as anything heroic we might do. That's the one example of it. So can we do more preaching and teaching that actually provides a biblical theology of work location hmm. so that we understand that work is um, uh, the work is good um, and that the ordinary is fine. Um, that's a start. Hmm. Secondly, I do think you alluded to it. Maybe you didn't do, do so intentionally. We need to actually give greater liberty to what I've spoken of as mid-career transitions. Hmm. That is, um, I think an increasing number of people are going to be making significant career transitions in midlife. So, for example, here at Ambrose Seminary, 
the majority of our students in the seminary are mid-career transition people, hmm. not like what I was. Out of university, I felt a call to ministry. I went to seminary. I became a pastor. A hundred percent of my peers in seminary in the 1970s were in the same category. We'd done our undergraduate in a public university. We went to seminary. We went into pastoral ministry. That is now the exception. The norm now is mid-career transitions. And can we empower people to do that, uh, to, 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 to see where indeed they're called, to take early retirement as a public school teacher and become a pastor, or go into business, or go into the arts, whatever it happens to be. Um, more and more of that's going to be happening. Hmm. And it's exciting. I mean, right now, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the successor to Rowan Williams, Justin Welby, he was in business with Total in France, called into ministry, went to Durham, did his seminary education, became an Anglican priest, became a bishop, and now is the archbishop. That is, somebody as prominent as that uh, discovered his calling to religious leadership uh, out of business. Mm. Um, so um, what does it mean as a pastor to um, two things? One, to not think that the inbreaking of the kingdom happens on Sunday morning or whenever you gather for worship, but that the inbreaking of the kingdom happens the Monday to Friday, Come and on. that Sunday is about equipping and empowering God's people to both see the inbreaking of the reign of Christ and know how their work is a means by which they participate. That is, it's a meaning-making exercise. Preaching is equipping and empowering people to appreciate the meaning of the kingdom and how their work is a participation in what God is doing in the world. It's fabulous. <clears throat> and therefore, we judge a congregation not by its size, for goodness sakes, but by whether or not these the members of that congregation are being equipped and empowered to be all that they are called to be Monday through Friday. And, uh, and probably mega churches are least able to do this. That is, uh, they, are, they are least equipped to do this. I think the odds are it's going to be smaller congregations who are more effective in the long run precisely because they have pastors who know the congregational members and preach in a way. So when you get up to preach, you can imagine the pharmacist, the school teacher, the artist, because I was in her gallery last week. The pharmacist, I picked up my own meds for my daughter in that very pharmacy last week. I can picture her there. The school teacher, I visited that school teacher in, their, in, her, in his school, teaching grade five boys, for goodness sakes. And I'm going to preach in a way that empowers and encourages him to do exactly that. Wow. And, and, and have that imagination. But then also to equip, to preach in such a way that frees people to let go when it's not their calling anymore. Hmm. That is, I can leave teaching public school without guilt, without a feeling of failure, and embrace a new thing that God is calling me to. And it may be pastoral ministry, or it may be to go into business with my cousin, whatever it happens to be. Um, that is one of the great gifts I think we can give to people through the ministry of the word mm. is, is meaning making about their lives and their work. I mean, we make jokes about, don't ask me what I do, ask me who I am. Uh, fair enough, except that you're not going to get away from it, uh, that people's People, their, their work gives them a sense of meaning and purpose in life, whether it's homemaking and raising children, 
or as an artist or as a business person, whatever it happens to be. And I think as preacher pastors, we are positioned so well to assure people of the significance and meaning of their work, um, especially in a society that denigrates the people who um, uh, wait on tables, uh, clean up after us in hotels, remove the sanitation workers who remove or the auto mechanic who does not think of his work as as meaningful as the lawyer. Those of us that are pastors are routinely telling people, your work matters. It matters to me uh, it, and it matters to God. Um, and there's just no, yeah. So I think we, we should be doing this all the time. Beautiful. I am very grateful for your time, Gordon. Thanks for the work you're doing at Ambrose um, to raising up people in all fields. Thanks for the time you invested in us today for being four pastors and caring. Bless you so much, man. Thank you. I want to say thanks again to Gordon Smith for taking time to be with us today. And if you're listening and you want to find any of the books that we mentioned that he's written or other resources, you can find links to all of that in the show notes. And for our next few episodes, this is really exciting. We want to share something a bit different. I've mentioned this off the top. We want to bring you into some of the conversations we've been having through the Church Leaders Incubator. Every month, we have a guest communicator who shares, and then we do open Q&R. It's pretty informal, but some of the content that's come out has been so meaningful. And so the team decided, why don't we pull together sort of a best of of these conversations? Because it's been so convicting and life-giving for us, why don't we bring other listeners into this journey? And so for over the next number of episodes, we're going to get a window into some of the conversations we've had with guests in the context of the incubator. Think about an informal environment where pastors like yourself are asking the honest questions to people who've run the race for a lot longer. And so we're going to pull some of the best of that content and share it with you. Before we sign off, I just want to say this, that more than ever, I'm aware that God is at work in our nation in this time. In some ways, these are difficult days. I know many pastors are discouraged, tired and beaten up. However, it seems apparent that in the midst of all of this shaking, the Spirit of God is moving. There's signs of new life. And I think we're all invited to set the sails of our lives to the wind of the Spirit, to lean into Him in dependency more than ever, to become a people of prayer and desperate on the work of the Holy Spirit. God is at work in our time and he's inviting us to be part of it. So I'm full of hope. I hope you feel that too. Every time I think and imagine these listeners across Canada, pastors in every city across this nation, I'm strengthened. And so I hope you are strengthened by the thought of pastors leaning in this week, just like you, loving people faithfully, praying boldly, leaning into God. We're in it together. God's on the move. We're grateful to be able to host this conversation. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you later.